up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my co-host for our second to last regular show of the year, Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, what's going on, man? Finishing strong, my guy. Another solid week for December. Feeling good about these content minds once again. Best mu- music, best TV coming next week before you know it. Before you know it, uh, yeah, you know, we not only have two huge albums, a couple of big movies, and uh, a fairly big TV show that we might may or may not be talking about in our best of list. We'll get to that in a second. But next week, we have one of the biggest movie releases of, I don't know, last decade? Avatar? Yeah. Recent times. No question. Very December exciting. Gives. December Gives is very good to us. Uh, and if you enjoy the content that December is allowing us to pump out. Hit that subscribe on youtube.com slash nostalgia pod. Go to our Twitter at nostalgia pod and follow the link tree there. Follow the podcast any way you want to. And also follow our nostalgia best of 2022 playlist on Spotify, which we're updating with a song from little Sims. No doubt. Maybe two, because surprisingly with no fanfare, no promotion, just dropping it on a Monday, little Sims in her follow-up album to one of one of our favorite albums of the last year sometimes i might be introvert dropping no thank you and dave did no thank you live up to the little sims quality that we're we're coming to expect yeah i would say so i think that goes without saying uh album five from little sims but really continuing this hot streak she's had for three albums in a row now gray area sometimes it might be introvert and now, no thank you, all three produced by Inflow, who seems to be a, a muse of sorts for Little Sims because she's just continuing to really uh, demonstrate that she is a very compelling voice in British hip hop and really hip hop in general. And uh, definitely did not expect an album so soon. Sometimes I might be introvert only a year and a few months ago. Um, that was album with so many accolades, you would have thought she would have taken more time. But no, it seems uh, the time was actually just right. New album, like you said, just kind of dropped it a week after tweeting out the title. I assumed she was going to tell us it was coming in like February or something. But no, she's like, actually, no, here it is. Happy Monday. So pretty cool. Yeah, definitely cool. Uh, very excited to listen to this. And yeah, you know, I feel like in a lot of ways, this feels like a just a more from introvert but um i think with very specific uh vision in terms of what she's trying to talk about on this uh within the, the past year you know she canceled a north american tour um citing financial reasons but also mental health reasons she uh broke away from her longtime manager of seven years so she's had some some turmoil going on in her own life turmoil might, might be a bit strong but some some things going on in her own life to talk about and i think she very clearly was inspired by those things because this album is talking a lot about mental health i think a lot about the black experience and the way that society uh sets black people up to have a, a difficult time in, in a lot of ways a lot of systems that work against them and you're doing it all with the same mix of smooth r&b and this like orchestral uh these orchestral flourishes throughout that we kind of came to really love on introvert and 
I think it I think it all works. And there, there's a few tracks on here that I was just really digging. What was your just general experience listening to it for the first time? Yeah, I think um, it perhaps isn't as like lyrically convincing or like stark as the past two albums. This one seemed a bit more like stream of conscious, a bit more off the cuff than some of her other songs from the past albums that were really, I think, really finely like tuned and finely messaged. That being said, she still has a really high floor when it comes to delivering lyrical hip hop. So it's not like these songs are are meaningless by any means. They certainly aren't. Um, yeah, if anything, I feel like I really noticed a lot of like horn horns and just general like orchestral like instrumentation, like lots of strings and stuff. Like maybe I'm just not remembering that from the other albums, but like it really stood out to me. Uh, no, thank you. Just I a lot of the uh, arrangements were really really beautiful, really great, and Little Sims obviously still has a really commanding and confident flow, a unique voice. So it all sounds great, unsurprisingly. Yeah, completely agree. And, you know, the first track, um, uh, Angel, is a, is a bit low key with with a few, I, I think, pretty strong bars. Probably one of the, my favorites was um, I don't want to be on a slave ship. Give me my masters and uh, what was it? Give me my, my masters and let me. Um, oh man, I, I totally flubbed right. this one. Which is but, funny because she is an indie artist too. Yeah, and isn't she self-releasing? But I think still so. fucking bar. Um, and, and lower your wages. Give me, give me all my masters and lower your wages. Um, yeah. So I thought that was a a decent start. But then Gorilla, you know, starts off with mm-hmm. these trumpets blaring with these like uh, violins and strings just kind of swelling all around. And we're, yep. I'm like, okay, we're back in the game. And her flow on that is just so confident and the the boom bap of the the beat is just like perfect and i was immediately like okay we're, we're back right into the introvert phase here it sounded mm-hmm. just like something that could have been right on, on there um and then no mercy was was the next track that really grabbed me i really yeah. loved no mercy um i think for me what really stood out about it was um just the like overall like like the bass on it is just so it just like grabbed you. I, don't, I guess there's no other way to say it. And, like I just felt really sucked in by the bass on this song and like the bounciness. It felt like this was something we hadn't really heard from her in this way before. And it felt a bit more exciting than some of the other stuff. Yeah, I, I agree. I think on No Mercy, just like the tempo is really mm. noticeable. And it's like a really like big, like cinematic, flashy sounding song, which is not usually her uh, trademark, her cup of tea. But of course, she still sounds great because her flow is so good. Yeah, I totally agree. I love Gorilla. I love No Mercy. I also like liked Heart on Fire quite a bit for like that background choir. But just in general, I think like this the the progression of all these songs with the tempo and just like a really like rich arrangement. Usually, I quite enjoy. I think some of like the outros where like there's no more lyrics, no more vocals, and it's just kind of like you know like an in- inflow doing his thing. I didn't need all of that honestly this could have kept it moving but yeah overall um she's just i think a really compelling figure and uh you know i mean there's a lot of talk obviously about like she could stand to get more recognition commercially but i don't know i feel like she's almost like moved moved beyond that she certainly carries herself like with that not really on the mind you know because i don't know i, I think like 
there's just so much critical attention and like the people that know like really know i think at this point like how good she is that like it's okay that she's not as like mainstream as some of the bigger names in uk hip-hop but like she just has such a body of work at this point it's hard to deny yeah i completely agree and and i think one of the things that impressed me most about her uh, on this album was the way that she's able to do a song like broken um which is a complete is it's seven and a half minutes but she's carrying the song on her own flow the whole time and dropping i think some really um i don't know if they're necessarily groundbreaking observations but i think poignant and, and meaningful to be kind of exploring the idea of like mental health uh for people in the black community and how like especially i think for immigrants they're expected to like kind of fall into the system and just navigate it and without any real like help or support and how this kind of leads to this uh machine of uh stress that leads to other health issues and just kind of being told that that this is wrong that's wrong you're poor you can't do that and just kind of builds up until they just feel completely broken and and beaten down and um i just was really impressed with her ability to make a song that for seven and a half minutes i just was completely sucked into her storytelling and her observations and not that she hasn't done that before but around that kind of subject matter it's it's like taking something like logic did with 1877 whatever the numbers are for prevention line um and putting it to like i think a different and and uh, a better degree so i was just really impressed with that um and she has some great bars throughout there was one line that's like i'm jay-z i'm not whatever and like uh i I just like really like struck by her confidence as well um just exciting to see her grow you know we were talking about her with gray area just a few um albums back or a few years back when we were first doing the pod and she's just come so far it's really exciting to watch totally agree uh people gotta start paying attention i think dave were you excited to see sizza dropping an album this weekend finally Jesus, man. Five and a half year wait, dude. Control was June 2017. The Top Dog Entertainment starlet. The slow burn rise to the top of R&B full stop, I think. You know, when SZA dropped back in 2017, that was not her status in R&B music. But Control is an album that really just stuck around and had this amazing streaming life and you saw it manifest with uh, the loose singles that SZA put out in the more recent years and the performance of a song like Kiss Me More with Doja Cat like she just kind of became a force despite the fact that there was this tremendous wait for new music and seemingly consistent uh, label issues and disagreements between SZA and the TDE camp and whatnot. And yet, she just seems like so incredibly successful. She just announced the SOS tour with Omar Apollo, and she's doing arenas. You know, yeah. like it, it really kind of blows my mind because, like, I still think back to like pre-control, like 2014 when like Z came out, mm-hmm. and like, yeah, like it just, it, I just never saw this getting to this point. But like, she has multiple like multi-multi-platinum songs off Control. It's like. It's just one of the biggest records of the last decade, honestly. Um, it's really exciting to not only get something that feels 
this like thoughtful and well developed and and really emotional. I mean, the, she's really like spilling herself on this. But also, I think something that feels like she's still continuing to invent herself and push herself um, stylistically, genre-wise. Um, and, you know, listening to this a few times, I was mostly just struck by her ability to, like, really just write these super catchy uh, couple of lines that you just know. Like, you can just see the TikToks being made about them. You can just see these, like, songs that you stuck in your head. And she just feels like she's going to be everywhere with this new album for her however long until she drops the next one it's just like okay so this is just going to be continually doing this probably for the rest of our lives it feels like she's that good i, I exactly agree the, like the lyricism the the personality that she imbues mm -hmm. in her songwriting is just so endearing to so many people and that's why you see such love and fanfare already for so many songs off sos online People, people just are feeling it, man. Like th there are lines she says, there are things she says in a, such an honest way, such a matter of fact way, a funny way, whatever it might be, that you just don't get. I think that true like candor and that true like unique personality in R and B music like this. And yeah, I really loved SOS, and I I think I love the fact that it was long and all over the place. But Sizzo is so capable that she was able to like really switch up genre, song to song to song on us and do all of it so well that you can't help but be like, wow, it's okay that like this is jumping around and being all over the place because she really is doing it well. Like, yeah, I loved it. You know, I think the first song for me that comes to mind from this, and it's funny because I never would have expected this going to a Sizzo album, is F2F, which... Oh my god. Is, it's like she just decided I'm gonna be like a rock star. I'm just gonna like step on Willow's corner and just completely make the best song in the genre that, that came out this year. I was so fucking impressed with this. You know, it starts off and I'm like, is this like gonna be some corny like like pop sounding thing? And then like the guitars come in at the chorus, <laughs> get a rise out of watching you fall, and I'm like, Yes, fucking go. Like it just is so catchy, so well written. The like I hate myself for the two of us. Like it's yeah. so perfectly done. It's amazing. Totally, and it's so funny because it follows up "Ghost in the Machine" featuring yes. Phoebe Bridgers, which is actually like a pretty capable indie rock song. Mm -hmm. And then she's like, "You know what? No, actually, I'm gonna turn it up all the way to 11 with F2F and make a fucking punk pop song. It's hilarious, mm -hmm. pop punk song. Like you said, I hate me enough for the two of us. That's another. That's a classic, instant classic. Says a line. Yeah, I'll see um, it on TikTok for the rest of my life. Yeah, <laughs> I fuck him because I miss you. Like again, like incredible performance. Uh, and yeah, like I think like man, I just never would have seen that coming. You know, like her letting oh. loose in that way. But it, it it's so not only is it confident, it's just really good. It's really fun. You know, mm -hmm. uh, that was a blast. Honestly, I loved but, that whole run yeah. from smoking on my X pack through uh, nobody gets me because it's just so unexpected. And the rest of the album is a, is a lot more what you expect from SZA but that four song stretch just is so unique to me because it's like her just I'm making a, a rap song I'm gonna make a indie song I'm making a punk pop song and then she makes a more just classic acoustic song I'm like man she just fucking can nail all this stuff and it's just seems so effortless in a lot of ways um tell me about the other things that you liked though yeah no I totally agree about that run and I would actually drop it a, a, a song earlier too 
um you mentioned smoking on an x-pack that's just her doing like hip-hop and like actually having like really capable rap flow and stuff mm-hmm. because of course she has that but the song before that gone girl oh yeah might be my favorite just like when the piano drops in on that it's like mm-hmm. jesus christ this sounds so great and and her, her singing is so impassioned on it um mm-hmm. i love that one i thought her flow on notice me was really good that's another one lyrically it's going to affect a lot of people i would think um love language she samples her own previous single hit different like you you love to see that level of like meta attention to your own previous music that's really fun Mm -hmm. um yeah and even songs i think are just like you know solid r&b joints solid scissor songs that like i thought seek and destroy was really good i thought yep uh too late was really good you know like i think there's a lot on this i think ultimately yeah like 23 songs probably didn't need all those you know like I don't know about you, like, open arms with Travis Scott. Obviously, I get why she's making those song with Travis Scott, Love Galore, from Control's, mm-hmm. like, six times platinum. Don't think it hits the same highs. I Hate You and Good Days, previous singles, I never, don't really love those. But Shirt, I think, was one of the newer singles, I think is still pretty solid. So, yeah, I mean, ultimately, there's just, there's just a lot of, I think a lot to, like, really dig into and appreciate. And that's in addition to the fact that you stuff all those really awesome like SZA qualities when it comes to her vocal performances and her songwriting. So like it's it's really everything you could have wanted. The the thing I really liked about the song with Travis Scott is not not so much the song itself, but that she could have just put him on low at the beginning. It would have felt like okay, it's just a Travis Scott song. But no, she kept that song for herself, and then she's like, well, I'm gonna go put Travis on one of my songs. You're right. And so like I just really appreciate that because I feel like so often now when we see Travis jumping on a, someone's album. They're trying to make the song to fit him. And she's just like, no, you're on my album. I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want, which I just really appreciated. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think I like I like what you said about Seek and Destroy. I think that one stood out to me as well. I actually like the one before it, Kill Bill as well. I think that the chorus is just really catchy. I just killed my ex. Um, <laughs> and I think that's the thing is like the more I listen to it, the more I just find these little like phrases or these like one or two lines just really getting stuck in my head and yeah i mean i agree it's bloated 23 songs always going to be i wonder if that's just a uh facet of the fact that she hadn't dropped in so long or if it's you know trying to play the streams yeah i don't know it's a good question i mean earlier this year control got like a five-year anniversary deluxe with some bonus tracks on it if anything's gaming the streams it's something like that you know but yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, like SOS, you still have, you have Good Days on this. Good Days came out in 2020. Yeah, I Hate You, 2021. Like, th- th- those are old songs, whatever, it's fine. But, um, I mean, yeah, Old Dirty Bastard sample. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, it's a flex for sure, but awesome. Um, I mean, honestly, like, I, I was even impressed, like, I don't know if I caught it when she first said it, but, like, I think I caught it on Relisten where... And a lot has been a lot been written about this already. I'm conceited. She very candidly speaks about plastic surgery she's had done herself and how she feels about that positively and as not afraid to say it as much. And I think that is another kind of lyrical sentiment that obviously is really positive to hear in music. And I think we'll get a lot of love from listeners as well. Consider this a breakup album. I mean, it has to be, right? Right, right. But like, it doesn't feel like it's fully a breakup album. Um, but I agree. It, it, I guess I would say it is. Would you say that this is the best breakup album since Melodrama? Oh, 
Well, I hadn't thought about that. Mm. I, I'm not nothing. I don't know what immediately comes to mind as another contender for that status, but uh, yeah, in terms of like impassioned vocals about uh, failing romance and just in general uh, struggling to move on with your life and things like that. Yeah, this is definitely up there. Yeah, it was the first thing that came to mind. I was like, "Ooh, this might be the best one since melodrama." That for me had to probably go back and check that, but just really, uh, really impressed with this overall. Again, we'll be adding a song or two to our Nostalgia Best of 2022 play- playlist on Spotify, so check that out. Let's get to the movies, and Dave, going to give you the the rock to talk about Empire of Light. Yeah, man, Empire of Light, new Searchlight Pictures film. Starring Olivia Coleman from our good friend Sam Mendes, lest we forget, not too long ago, right before the pandemic, he directed the Best Picture winner that was in 1917. Won hmm. many a acting prize before being felled by Parasite before the world changed. Mendes is back with his buddy Roger Deakins. And who do you bring along for the show? Olivia Coleman, you know, one of the, the great living actors. These days on just an amazing run, as I think we all know at this point. You got Colin Firth in a supporting role, Toby Jones in a supporting role. Sounds like a notable film, obviously. The Sam Mendes follow-up to 1917 with Olivia Colman speaks for itself. And this debuted at Telluride earlier this year, and it was not well-received. And let me tell you, I I did know that going in, but I'll say, you know, you got to have an open mind with the level of talent dispersed dispersed through this film and i I checked it out it's in a limited release and yeah man this is a i think it's a movie that just really doesn't work it had i think some well-intentioned themes but does not come together in the way it needed to i think to land given like i think the ambition the movie's trying to put on itself with its messaging and just a bit of a bummer honestly i think coleman is good in this like she always is I, I wouldn't you know think it's like one of the best things she's ever done though and yeah just ultimately a disappointment but uh it's set in the 1980s and i think kent english coast uh, in england and we are at this movie theater movie palace type place called the empire owned by colin firth and olivia coleman is one of the the workers there uh toby jones is the projectionist and it's a movie that on one hand it's about like a love letter to cinema you know the good old days the movie palace right uh the thing the issue with the movie though is like that's not all this is about it has too many other things on its mind um and the least offensive thing about it is that it's, like, oh, it's a love for cinema of the past and whatnot that th- that stuff probably lands the best but fortunately it's also a movie about um struggling with mental health uh specifically regarding Livy Coleman's character, and you learn more about that as you watch the movie. And that, I don't think, is really handled in a deft enough way to really say much of anything about it, and kind of turned me off to the rest of the movie. And the other piece that doesn't really work is there's this kind of this, like, wayward romance story that really drives most of the movie. If anything, you would call this, like, a bit of a romance film, because uh, Michael Ward character steven comes in and he plays a a younger man and him and olivia coleman's character hillary kind of like hit it off uh just you know talking about about life and whatnot and actually end up uh having a a romance despite the differences in their age 
And that I think is something where like, it could have been a lot more effective. I think if there wasn't this other like huge issue with like this movie's priorities, um, Steven is Michael Warren. Steven like is black and we are set in Margaret Thatcher's England, you know, in the eighties. Right. So like, before we know it, the national front is a story, you know, and you see like skinheads in England and stuff. And it's like, I got really annoyed when you have this scene where Hillary is basically revealed to be like an ignorant, uh, aloof white woman, not really understanding uh, how racism works in her, in her country, in her community. And it's like a movie about, it's like, Oh, this young black man, like showed her, unfortunately showed her how racism affects him in his life. And thus she was able to see that and thus better her own personal self and overcome some of her demons and see the greater community in, in it all. And it's like, I think there was just too much going on with this movie and you're tackling a few like quite heavy themes that need, I think a lot more care to really hit in the way you want them to hit. And it just really doesn't coalesce in the way it needs to. So I was just, I think, a bit annoyed with, like, the lack of sophistication with a lot of this stuff in the movie. And again, it's a big disappointment because it looks great. You know, you have Deacons behind the camera, shocker. Coleman is still quite good, even if she plays a character with some fluctuations in her uh, mannerisms, obviously, as someone who, uh, you know, is is on the spectrum in some way. So, yeah, Uh, Michael Ward was really great. Honestly, as Steven, I think he's probably most famous for being on Top Boy on Netflix. But uh, yeah, I'd say it's a, it, it, ultimately it's a miss. You know, it's um, just a, a bummer. That's so disappointing. Yeah, that that is disappointing. And I think even like just tough to like have them, like you mentioned, have the movie have this part where like a black person has to educate a white person about racism and like kind of like enlighten them like it's i don't know a little refreshing and potentially it's true to life back then i don't know if people were all that oblivious but yeah it just doesn't that, that that seems like a part i would probably not jive with either probably not a movie i'm gonna be seeking out especially with so many good ones to catch up on and dave i know that you didn't get to emancipation emancipation the new will smith movie on apple tv plus just came out this past weekend um you know originally this was uh screened in dc um and i I believe it was like released to like people in in congress to like kind of like give them this special uh viewing and uh Mm. directed by antoine fuqua will smith's uh stars as peter who is based off of uh gordon or whipped peter a, a famous picture from uh, 1863 of a uh, escaped slave that uh, was circulated at that time to basically to show the cruelty of slavery, which kind of like crazy to think about at the time that people weren't just aware of the cruelty of slavery, but many people I think were living in ignorance, which, uh, you know, th- this picture went a long way to like just kind of proving that this the war was was worth fighting yeah. to help these people. Po- popularizing like abolitionism and stuff like that. Yeah, it's definitely a really, I think, a storied artifact was the circulation of that photo as you said and um the basically this is shortly after the emancipation proclamation is uh signed however the the north and the south are still fighting the confederates and the united states army 
Um, and Will Smith plays the slave who is in a Louisiana um, you know, uh, slave uh, encampment. I, I don't even want to say it's a necessarily like a, a farm. You know, it's not like a cotton field or anything like that. They're like building um, em embankments and things like that. They're building structures. Um, and he's very religious, which uh, the only reason I'm saying this because I'll, I'll bring it back around to why, to why I think that was like an interesting aspect of the movie. Um, and pretty much decides he needs to escape in order to go to find the Northern Army, which is in Baton Rouge. And um, this leads to a chase movie, an action movie turned also into a war movie by the end. Um, and it is a weird movie. <laughs> I don't know if I, if I liked this movie, disliked this movie, because there was just a lot going on. Um, Will Smith plays a Haitian um, person who is enslaved by uh uh like i said it's a couple people but ben foster plays facile who basically like this overseer of this like slave encampment ben foster love him as an actor again giving like a really strange performance here you know like a lot of the people are huh. very um like a lot of the slave owners and, and controllers there are very just like stereotypical southern like over the top like yelling boy the n-word at these people and he plays a very like mannered within himself like controlled person who's very like sly and cunning and brutal like he's just very like cutthroat he's using his like um willingness to not be as cruel to their faces as a way of like getting the slaves to, like cooperate with him at times even though then he'll just yeah. be just as cruel um, it brings like a really interesting vibe to the movie. You know, he's he is kind of a menacing villain, but just like a very strange performance, in my opinion, only because it, it's so different from the movie. And then he has a pretty unceremonious death. Um, spoiler alert um, that I, I just felt like didn't necessarily hit home for what the movie, I think, was trying to go for. Smith has an accent in this, which, you know, his accent work is always fairly hit or miss and this one feels more like a miss for me um i think what what i found most interesting about this or uh, in interesting and not not such a good way is like this movie was highlighting the cruelty and certainly the cruelty is on ten thousand here you see slaves get ripped apart by dogs ripped apart by crocodiles there's a lot of time spent in swamps there's just a ton of brutality um uh, it's it's like this weird like action chase movie and it feels like it almost kind of takes away from what the movie's trying to say in a lot of ways huh. and then once once smith makes it to baton rouge um he's forced to join the u.s army because he's te technically contraband at that time so he either has to um like go back or fight in the army it feels like a pretty like actually i don't think it was go back it was like there's another choice that was terrible so he just and that highlights how at this time it was not good for slaves in any way, even the ones that were being emancipated. Um, but it was just like a weird switch up. So then he had to go and fight in this battle. Um, it is nice when he's reunited with his family at the end. I felt definitely very happy to see that. And I think there's a couple of of worthy performances from some of the people down the cast. You know, I, I didn't know a lot of the supporting cast, but I thought everybody was pretty good for the most part. But overall, just felt a little disjointed, a little strange. Um, and just a, 
it felt like it was like missing something like smith is doing so much action that he almost doesn't get to really like use his acting chops when he is acting it's a lot of his like thoughts are based around his religious beliefs and so it it can be a bit like preachy and like confusing Mm. in terms of messaging there as well so i just felt like overall it was it could have used a little bit more refining but you know, I I don't think Smith will be getting a Academy Award nomination for this, but right. he, he's done worse stuff too, for sure. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of uh, talk about how Emancipation would go right after the slap happened earlier this year, where the talk was that Emancipation was really great, and would Apple still run this movie for awards? Would they hold it? Would they can it completely? Obviously, we know they are putting it out, but it has not been as well received as the early buzz had suggested. So I don't think much more is going to come of that. You know, we'll see what happens yeah. next. Will Smith hasn't been cast anything new. As far as I know, this had already like, you know, been in the can by the time all that, everything happened anyway. Um, yeah. I think, I don't know. It's just like me, like my general feelings about stuff, like between like 12 years a slave and Barry Jenkins underground railroad, I feel like we've just achieved an art, like the pinnacle of slave dramas that oh. I think I'm good on seeing black people oppressed and brutalized at this point i would love to see other stuff you know like like the woman king for example earlier this year which is much was a more rousing film right has plenty of action in it but also uplifting you know i think um you know i mean even like uh the uh cynthia revo harriet movie from a few years back too i know that had a bit of action twist Mm -hmm. to it too It, it just seems like there's there's not as much to gain anymore dramatically. It, it feels like you're just going back to the well. And it's like, oh, this is the only thing that gets financed is, uh, you know, black people as slaves still. It's like, I would love if we could really move beyond it unless you're getting something that's like truly tremendous, like the Underground Railroad or 12 Years a Slave. I feel like, you know, we're it's, it's unlikely that we would ever get stuff as good as mm-hmm. those two things. So therefore, why don't we just do some other stuff, you know? I'm sure uh, other people I, disagree, but that's kind of how I, I like these old movies don't get me excited, you know. Right. I'm interested to see um, how this is received, and uh, maybe it's, it's out there. I just haven't found the article yet. How this is received by people within the black community? You know, Will yeah. Smith is a huge draw for uh, people within that community to go to the movies. He's one of the most bankable stars for the black uh, population to actually go out and see something. And this is an action movie. So I think there's like an aspect where it's maybe a little bit more palatable to watch something that is so traumatic um, regarding their history um, or the history of some of them. Um, But at the same time, I, I agree that it's, it's heavy material. It's been done better than this. And I just wonder if this will be a misstep for him or if this will be something that people actually come to appreciate. I also wonder if they want to keep seeing these kind of stories told over and over again, or if, like you said, maybe they're interested in seeing other black stories told. So probably right. maybe both. Who knows? Um, anyways, let's keep it moving to <laughs> Pinocchio. And Dave, we didn't talk about the Zemeckis Pinocchio. Did you watch that? I did not watch that. Uh, only like three months ago, Robert Zemeckis's Pinocchio for Disney came out on Disney Plus, and it was roundly panned to the point where I think I saw some clips. Technically, it's like a live action Pinocchio. You have Tom Hanks as Geppetto. But uh, yeah, there was nothing good <laughs> said about that movie. So I moved beyond it. We did not talk about it. But 
think part of that was because we knew that Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio for Netflix was on the horizon. And of course that just came out and it, it is kind of hilarious that in the span of three months, you get one that was so well liked like del Toro's and one that was so hated like Zemeckis. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really funny not only to get to Pinocchio movies in the same year, but to have such different receptions. Um, I don't plan on going and watching the, the Zemeckis one, um, but I, I can't imagine it could come close to this because I really thought that uh, going in, I had no interest in Pinocchio. Zero. I, I The, the story's fine. To me, it's always been a little bit confusing. I was like, I don't, I don't need to watch this. After watching this, I'm really glad I did because I thought this was really well done. And um, yeah, n- never doubt del-, del Toro, I guess, is like what I took away from this, because the man just knows how to make things look great and interesting and uh, bring about emotion. And I thought this was just really wonderful watch. What about you? Yeah, I agree. You know, it's not something that I was necessarily excited about. I think part of that was there are a million Pinocchio movies. If we can move beyond this year, just right before the pandemic started, there was a live action Italian version. There's tons of them every decade there are pinocchios and you know pinocchio is not disney ip despite what probably many people think maybe growing up just a general italian story it is a public domain thing so there's a lot of pinocchio stuff out there a lot of twists and and spins on it and i think a lot of the talk about del toro's pinocchio is that this one is grounded in 1930s fascist italy and like the, the, the the specter the threat of fascism is a big part of this film and i'm I'm happy to see that because you might as well do something at least slightly new or have something slightly different to say if you're going to make the 50th Pinocchio movie, you know? So on top of that, like you said, the craft of the movie is is so impressive. The stop motion animation specifically is very strong, very beautiful. Yeah. Um, You know, the Pinocchio uh, design is more evocative of, of some previous spins where it's more of a strictly wooden, uh, less you know symmetrical less humanoid looking pinocchio too so that's probably less um uh recognizable to you know like the average american i'd imagine but uh yeah i think just the 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 voice acting the animation quality uh the weaving in of a a larger metaphor it's not that it's a deep comment by any means but just the fact that it was even there at all i was happy about and yeah, I think like towards the end too, like once you've like really been with Pinocchio for some time, like he was like a fun hang. And like I, some of his line readings by the end, like did make me chuckle, you know, like that moment where he's like, oh yeah, I died a few times, you know, you're not missing <laughs> anything or whatever he says. Like, I thought that was so fucking funny. Yeah, no, I agree. It's funny because I think at first he comes across as greeting and then Gregory Mann's performance is just so... It, it, it's so well done and um but by the end i mean the final couple scenes where you know sebastian j cricket and um the the monkey uh spazarata um spazatura sorry spazatura apparently voiced by kate blanchett you could have fooled me why even drop the bag for her just to do that i don't even know so weird i mean what she does she gets one scene where she talks and when he's like controlling the other puppets and she's like so unrecognizable. I don't know. Didn't didn't seem worth it. Um, and then uh, of course uh, Geppetto dying. Um, I it was just like tears for sure. Um, but man, I have to say, 
Ewan McGregor and Christoph Waltz, in terms of voice performances, mm. totally stole this for me. I thought they, as Sebastian J. Cricket and Count Volpe, were just, like, fucking phenomenal. And I was uh, not only mesmerized by McGregor's ability to still somehow charm and, and schmooze me just with his voice, like, uh, it was like amazing. Like I was like, this guy is the best voice in the world. But also the like you said, the animation of him and having the four arms, you know, where one of them is like acting like this, the other one's kind of like up in the air. I thought was so like so fun to watch and just I I found myself just like laughing at seeing what the cricket kept doing. I thought that was my favorite mm-hmm. part. Yeah, a lot of lot of uh, spastic, uh, <laughs> slap slapstick comedy with. Yeah. Uh, Sebastian J. Cricket, which was nice. But yeah, he, I think Ewan was really convincing as like a narrator, too. Like yeah. just, it, it was a strong voice performance. And Christoph Waltz obviously knows how to choose scenery as a bad guy. Uh, he was mm-hmm. he was quite great, too. Um, yeah, I think like I really love the like recurring motif of Pinocchio dying and coming back to life and like yeah. going to like purgatory briefly and waiting out his ability to respawn with like the sphinx sprite person like i was digging all that because like i just love pinocchio's attitude once he got more confident and stuff Mm -hmm. you know but even like the prologue to the movie where it's geppetto and his actual human son carlo it's like it's actually really moving and it's like a really sad death and like Mm -hmm. geppetto's like really down bad next thing you know you're you meet pinocchio who immediately has this really like rebellious attitude about life he knows nothing about and like you're off to the races you know yeah, no, I completely agree. It was it was so nice in the beginning that when you see them in the church, uh, you're just like, uh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Um, I, I really loved them just like shitting on Mussolini. Uh, <laughs> thought that was like a, a very fun part of this for me. And I, I really thought the, the stuff with Ron Perlman as Podesta and um, mm-hmm. then Pinocchio with his son was uh really Candlewick was really really great finn wolfhard giving another good uh vocal performance and yeah finn uh finn finn sounded young younger than he is at this point too like i i knew it was him but i was listening i'm like oh it doesn't sound like him you know it's actually like a good performance no i completely agree and i thought all that stuff really worked and um the the only part that like i i feel this way about the story almost every time i i do it the stuff with the whale is always just so like what the fuck are we doing like, I, know. I was hoping that they would change that up a little bit. I do have to say the the inside of the whale and like the pustules and the blowhole and stuff looked so like gross and grimy that I was just like really impressed with how they were able to make mm-hmm. it look that way. Um, but it always just like I'm like, what are we doing in this whale? It just never works for me. Yep, I hear you. Yeah, I mean honestly, I barely remember most of like the classic Pinocchio story, and I was like, you know what? I don't need to freshen up. I can just watch it as is. It's fine. <laughs> exactly. Um, who did you like more in like a very short moment? Tim Blake Nelson as the Black Rabbits or John Dutoro as uh, the Doctor? Dutoro. Dutore. Yeah. Uh, I think Tim Blake Nelson just because I noticed yeah. him more. You know, mm-hmm. like Dutoro is like a blink and you miss it kind of thing. Yeah. It's just funny. Like you go down this list, like how are these people taking on these roles? Uh, just like, few lines the rabbits i think maybe speak like five times throughout the whole movie um tilda swinton just continues to be uh ethereal and Mm -hmm. just like cast yeah yeah, perfectly cast i don't know this seems like a shoe-in to win best animation right yeah best animated feature contender for sure i mean honestly like if you think about netflix at the oscars this year uh 
Bardo flamed out the festivals and uh, whatever their other contender is. A, a white noise from Noah Baumbach also seemingly much more polarizing. So this is arguably like their most well-regarded movie of the award season. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think they're, it sounds like they're running it hard. Del Toro is a famously effective awards campaigner as well. Lest we forget just last year, Nightmare Alley got into best picture. So yeah, I think best animated feature nom is a lock and, some people were thrown in as like a like the tenth nom in best picture. I don't know if we're gonna get that far, but yeah, it sounds um, like animated feature for is is right up there, and it's well earned. It's very just justly um, uh, earned, and and it, 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 again, it's just funny to see Disney take a gigantic L to, to Netflix so soon with this. It's pretty pretty awesome, and <laughs> Zemeckis is just super down bad lately with with a bunch yeah, of man. bunch of dreck. Yeah, for real. It's it it's really tough to have this come out so so soon after. Um his just totally flopped. I'm trying to see if uh was this not nominated at the Golden Globes? Not that it really matters. No, it didn't get nominated either one. So Yeah, the, those those um nominations are quite interesting to look at and I think those 10 would be like best case scenario for the Oscars, but we don't we don't appreciate the Golden Globes here, so we're not gonna talk too much about them. Dave, any last thoughts on Pinocchio? Or are you ready to go to the small screen? I think shout, shout out, uh, shout out Pinocchio, man. He was uh, <laughs> he he's a fun real real wooden boy. That that Pino. Shout out Pinocchio, the ultimate sacrifice. But Dave, the White Lotus also had some sacrifices, a few dead bodies to figure out this season. And now that season two is wrapped up, I think we should maybe just start with, did you feel like this lived up to the hype of season one? I think the White Lotus season two did live up to that hype and in in unexpected ways. You know, I think when you analyze and reflect on season two, which just concluded for us at HBO, it's wow, you know, this is a different type of show. This has a different kind of comment, different kind of message than the first one. The first season's message was really effective and easy to understand and grasp. And I think much more pointed and specific. Whereas season two, uh, I think is a, li- a bit more insular. And I, I just didn't, didn't really see that coming. But I also was quite surprised and shocked at how effectively... Mike White and friends were able to make Jennifer Coolidge's Tanya character, I think, significantly more compelling and have Jennifer Coolidge giving a much more interesting performance. And just like the presence of that character felt really leveled up from a season where she won an Emmy for the role, you know? Um, so, yeah, in, in short, season two, I think, was quite strong. And it was cool that it, it didn't just run back season one and, and do it all over again and makes it the season three uh, prospect even that much more tantalizing. We know it has been officially renewed, but Mike Way has not written a script yet. So it sounds like that'll be a little bit lo- more of a longer wait than we got between seasons one and two. But obviously I'm very excited for that because season two, I think kept you guessing in, in uh, intriguing ways. Yeah, I completely agree that this lived up to the hype of season one. Um, and I have to be honest, I, I, I was just really impressed with the fact that they got me to care about characters that I just thought I had no shot of really giving a shit about. Um, and, and the, I think the storylines that ended up being the most interesting 
to me were not the ones that at the start of the season felt the most interesting to me. You know, by the end, the stuff with the couple, um, Harper and uh, Ethan and Cameron and oh boy, Megan Fahey, Daphne. Yes, Daphne. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I was interested, but not as interested as I was in the stuff with the uh, Alfie and Dominic with the father son dynamics. Um, I, I think that there was an aspect of the overarching theme of sex in the season and, and what it like, how it played out in different relationships and, and what it helped people understand about themselves that mm. I found more interesting in terms of the uh, generational dynamics than I did in terms of like the couple dynamics in a sense. Um, and it, I think for me, what what I really like loved about it was like the interplay of money and sex. Um, whereas like the couples didn't have that, but with Lucia as a sex worker being so such, such a crucial part of, of Alfie's storyline, as well as Dominic's and Dominic's final decision at the end to, give Alfie this money knowing it was most likely just you know being (laughs) that Lucia was just using him um but in order to get his wife back or at least have his son put a good word in to get his wife back I just found that also interesting like how much would you pay to let it like in order to like get something like like a favor like that just found so interesting like instead of paying for sex he was almost paying to like for the opportunity to like save his marriage I just thought that was all really interesting. And then obviously at the end, you see how this whole experience has really impacted Alfie and how, you know, the, the grandfather turned his head to look at the girl, the father turned his head to look at the girl. And so did the son. So just really uh, thought that whole storyline was really fascinating to watch grow. Well, I think, I think that like the connective tissue, it's just much more interesting between all these threads where it's, it's about, I think, transactional relationships in your lives, whether it's, actual money like you mentioned with like the DeGrasso family and Lucia and everything or it's transactional love and 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 marriage like you have with um uh Theo James and Megan Fahey and then you eventually also get with uh Ethan and and Harper and like they realize they are actually more similar to these people they thought they had nothing in common with than mm-hmm. they want to believe at the beginning um and then even of uh, was it a uh, Valentina, the manager of the White Lotus Hotel? Even she, seeing the value and being more direct and transactional in the way she operates parts of her life as well, like seeing, I think all of that kind of coalesce, I thought was really interesting and just really really compelling. And and even um even Tanya, right? Like she knows things are not right for a while with um you know, quote, hashtag these gays, you know, but yeah. she also just loves that they are giving her this fake love and having fun with her. And she's using that too, you know? Yep. Totally. And it's like, it's actually, I think like a really like effective way to wind down that character because I thought she was just significantly less likable in, in season one. And now, yeah, like she's still like, you know, she's a rich person who can't be happy kind of thing. It's not the most relatable thing in the world, but, I think they just do so much more work, you know, with with this season, I think, to make that feel effective. And like her, you know, kind of winning out, you know, with the gun at the end there and then going out in a almost slapstick humorous fashion Mm -hmm. 
it's like, oh, wow, I think it was just actually like significantly more poignant than I could have ever expected it. Completely agree. You know, Tanya, um, like you said, season one, just pretty reprehensible. And season two, you come to like her so much more. And Jennifer Coolidge, I think, gives such a strong performance in those final two episodes as she's like, can tell something is off, you know, regarding Greg and, and his relationship to these people. But she also is just kind of like in it for this experience and, and wanting to like get the most out of this. And um, yeah, I thought it was hilarious watching her like try to act cool when she was like trying to like get to the end of the boat to like make a phone call. <laughs> and then like came like running around the corner and then just acted all cool and then went running back around the corner thought that was great also uh, how did you feel about the cinematography when she started like shooting up the boat did you think that was uh, a nice touch yeah i actually thought it was kind of cool and Mm -hmm. i like how it all ends there too where there's no like final exposition where tom hollander is like yes me and greg did it all along you were right fuck you i'm dead like no like that's not that's not what this show's about just like this show isn't about are those kids of Daphne's actually Cameron's or are they the trainers kids? They're the trainers. Are, are Cameron and Daphne trying to get money from Ethan and Harper or something? Like, like all those like theorizing and things like some of the stuff's easy to figure out and just plays out. Like obviously the stuff with the gays being trying, being out together and some of it doesn't play out, but like none of that actually being determined is the point of this show. It's not a mystery box show. It's not a show that, is interested in those theories but that's actually what made this season so fun to me was like the the breadth of the theories that people had about this show i think speaks to just how compelling this like motley crew of characters in the on these situations felt to people you Mm -hmm. know um yeah and yeah so i thought that cinematography was cool it was kind of uh out of character for this show to this point so it was kind of a a nice surprise uh in that regard and uh yeah i I thought just in general like the way everything happens with Tanya and the way she goes out was um, quite superb, honestly, because I, I, did, I did not think she was going to be the dead body the entire time until uh, I love when they did the fake out with um, Cameron and Ethan fighting in the, in the shallows of the beach. And they're like, Oh, one of them is going to drown the other one. Mm-hmm. They fake you out. Neither one of them does that. And then when we got to the boat and I was like, Oh fuck. So now, now, now we know where the body's coming from. And that definitely surprised me. Yeah, no, I, I I had kind of thought it was either going to be that um, like all the gays were going to die, but Tanya would live. Um, or my other theory was like um, Alfie kills like the, the, the pimp that was following Lucia around, you know, like takes things too far. Um, one of the storylines that I, I did not see coming when the season started, I don't think anyone could have because Leo Woodall wasn't in the first couple episodes was um, his... Uh, character is jack who's like in uh, working with the gays and, and kind of indebted to them and, and doing their bidding um his relationship with portia played by Haley lou richardson i found that to be a um like an up and down storyline for me at times like uh, i think it, it was in a lot of ways a um just a side quest to tanya's main quest yeah. but i thought Haley lou richardson was really strong um and leah woodall just like having a lot of fun with this like ridiculous yeah. character um but from at, Essex. <laughs> yeah it just didn't always work for me you know it's something about it just felt yeah. like i didn't always want to be with them yeah i think ultimately like that ends up being like a means to an end where like it pays off in, in the finale where you have uh 
uh, what's her name, Portia and Albie mm-hmm. like reconnect by chance basically at the airport terminal and be like, hey, like, can we get her? Can I get your number? Because like yeah. they both just went through people that they actually were more compelled by, right? Mm-hmm. It's like Portia pretty clearly, pretty quickly after like the first day realized that like Jack is like. Maybe she didn't know that the insidious shit was going on, but like, you know, that guy wasn't actually as probably compelling to her uh, intellectually as she wanted, but there's something about him, right? Something, he's not an attra- attraction thing, yeah. a fun thing, right? Same thing with Albie and Lucia, you know? He's like, oh, well, let me get what, go after this girl who's leagues out of my league, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that. And then what happens? They both kind of come back and realize they're they're kind of kind of broken and need maybe each other they can help each other out like i i think that works but yeah i think you're right like towards the end there like the jack and porsche stuff uh, i was like okay it's, it's a bit of wheel spinning as we're letting other stuff happen i was able to tolerate it um honestly i really loved uh like everything that happens with with ethan and harper because mm. like ethan going like batshit paranoid uh, I just thought that was like really effective too, yeah. And I think the way like that relationship comes like full circle reminds me a bit of like the Jake Lacey Alexander Daddario mm-hmm. relationship at the end of season one, where it's like they don't feel as good about each other as they did, but they're gonna stick it out and realize that they're probably still better together kind of deal. It's not a perfect analog, but like the way that they rekindled their their romantic love for each other and their sexual attraction for each other by becoming Cameron and Daphne in a certain regard. I was like, like, I don't know, like that, that just doesn't really work for me. And obviously Aubrey Plaza's got a ton of plaudits this season as Harper. We, I love that yeah. she's getting so much attention for this role, high profile role. I mean, this show was higher rated than season one, which is hard to believe because that show was popular at the time, got all that Emmy love. So uh, really happy for her, but yeah, I thought that the Ethan and uh, Ethan Cameron, like all that stuff, by the end, I thought like I, I liked where it ended up. Yeah, I liked where it ended up too, and I, I thought it was like when Ethan is just having a full break, and especially when he goes to Daphne and tells her that he thinks something's going on, and and Megan Fahey in that moment just completely like crushed that scene. She <laughs> watching her facial response like go from like betrayal and hurt to like like almost like dissociation to like okay let's come on this walk with me let's go check this out and obviously you don't know what happens it's i think it's pretty much insinuated that they went and had sex and right then you know ethan and aubrey plaza are kind of on the same level um and they both can kind of accept this where they're at and uh, i i definitely I, I liked it all um i think for me like the the stuff where um Harper is like spiraling. It's like episode maybe like four or five, right? With the she gets super drunk. Yeah, uh, I thought that was like my favorite Plaza episode. She's just on her a game, just crushing it. Um, and the stuff between her and Theo James, like really spicy. Like you know, like yeah. when he's grabbing her at the table, I was like, oh damn! Like they're fucking, they're they are just crushing this like dynamic so well. I mean, at Theo James, I feel like he came into our lives with Divergent. Or, or the second diversion, whatever, whatever the timing was. And like, since then, I feel like we, we ha- he hasn't been in like too much, like great stuff, but I, I thought he was great. Perfectly cast as yeah. Cameron, you know, um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Something about Ethan just being so unable to communicate 
with Harper. It's like, we didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. You're lying to me. <laughs> like, and, uh, the dude just sucked ass, honestly. Um, <laughs> and the opposite side of the spectrum, you have F. Murray Abraham as this, like, non-PC old man, but, like, his line readings were so fucking funny so much. Yeah, you know, I, I, I didn't, I didn't say this at the beginning, but I really liked uh, going back to like the generational storylines about how like he's basically rejected by the family that they find there on the island, right? They don't want anything to do with him. They don't care that this could be a distant relative, even though they don't understand that that's even why they're there, sort of thing. And um, then to see that come around with Dominic, where he's like fighting so hard to like get his family back, and like the idea of like money and sex being this thing that's like trying to like rip this family apart but also hold it together at the same time in so many different ways i just thought was so interesting um it, i actually felt like f marie abraham you know after that scene with uh the relatives on the island kind of sidelined for the most part didn't really get a lot to do in the last couple episodes which a little disappointing i almost wish he had a little bit more to do with um the the singer and i never remember her name um uh uh is it a mm-hmm. um, yeah uh, I, I don't know why is it mia mia yeah, it's mia yeah that's it um, played friend. by beatrice grano and you know in in some ways the, the most poetic final shot of lucia and mia walking down uh the streets of sicily arm in arm with these like lavish like new clothes on and just like completely taking these like dumb Americans <laughs> for a ride and getting everything that they want. I just thought was so poetic. I'm really excited to see where this goes next. Apparently uh, Mike White has said that he thinks Portia and um, Greg's storylines may carry through to the third season, but huh. out of all the characters that were here, who would you like to see come back in the third season? Yeah. Good question. Obviously, Tani's off the table. Um, just uh, technically, an answer to this could be Laura Dern as the one episode voice of Dom's estranged wife, Albie's mom. That's kind of like, I think, an obvious like technical continuation slash stunt casting option. But assuming that's not chosen. Yeah, I think Haley Richardson makes sense here. Um, you know... I don't know like could could you do could you do Aubrey Plaza as like more of a supporting character and not have her essentially focused as Tanya was this year it's tough because I think like all the arcs are really satisfying I think in White Lotus mm-hmm. season two that I think you have to get creative and clever to bring someone back but then again that's how people felt about Tanya as well and they they made that work so I don't know who, who comes to mind for you Dave the this is my pitch to Mike White to hire me. Here's here's who you carry through. It's Mike Imperioli with Laura Dern. And what they're going to do is they're going to be going to a White Lotus vacation in the Alps to save their marriage or to try to rekindle their love. But while they're there, Mike Imperioli's Dominic is being tempted to sleep with all these people. Right. And so then yeah, it's about sure. like, do, do, has he actually grown? Has he not? And because they're in the Swiss Alps, you can tie in all this sound of music type stuff and kind of pull in some of the like nat like uh, Nazism that's been uh, or neo Nazism that's been on the rise and like have have people actually learn their lessons or not. And that will be the through line of the the the, the overarching theme of season three. So, Compelling pitch. Compelling. Mike White, hire me. 
he has said that he has he has interest in Asia for a third season. Wouldn't mind so that. We'll see. But uh, I think the big takeaway is that he had he only just finished editing season two, so there's no season three treatment. There's no season three script, let alone casting or production start date. So I don't I don't think we're we'll getting see it in 2024. Year. 2024. It sounds like. Yeah, seems that way to me. Um, overall, very pleased with this. I just hope uh, I hope that they get some some other great performers. I'm sure there's a lot of people who want to be doing this, and whenever it's on, I'll be watching. So. Dave, that wraps us up, up there. Other than Avatar next week, what else we got? Yeah, Avatar The Way of the Water, obviously the marquee uh, feature for us there. But you also have on Netflix, Inaritu's latest film, Bardo, which is should be interesting, as well as uh, another comeback album from Absol, speaking of TDE, and uh, Survivor Season 43 as well. We'll get into that. So, And then shortly thereafter, Best Music of 2022 and Best TV of 2022 as well. Can't wait to talk Survivor. Excited for the finale uh, uh, tomorrow. But uh, if you're excited to hear everything we're talking about next week, hit that subscribe on youtube.com slash NostalgiaPod. Go to the podcast on Twitter at NostalgiaPod and follow the link tree and also follow our Nostalgia Best of 2022 playlist on Spotify. We'll catch you next week. Peace out. Yeah.